Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 147. This episode is with Head of Fitness and Academy Sports Science and Medicine at Middlesbrough Football Club, Frankie Hunter. Frankie came on to talk about her approach to developing fitness in pre-season. We had a little chat around some of the different different approaches seen by different clubs in the pre-season period this year as well. We also spoke about the transition from pre-season to the season and how her approach changes if it does um, going through that period. We spoke about maintaining and developing uh, fitness throughout the season as well and her opinions on whether fitness can be developed in season two. And then we also spoke about keeping the whole squad fresh and dealing with unsettled players as well. So we covered loads of great stuff in this one and I really appreciate Frankie coming on and giving up her time. Um, I think you'll I think you'll take plenty away from this episode, so make sure you got a pen and paper ready. Um, just a very quick one before we dive into the episode. Thursday, the 19th of August, we have our next networking event. Delighted to say we've got our next networking event at New York Stadium, Rotherham. This is what our rearranged event that we had booked pre-COVID. Um, so I'm delighted to be getting the meeting going again um, as we had planned before. It's brilliant to have speakers Ross Burberry and Tom Scupian. He They are both going to be presenting for us at the event. So not only do we get to go and see the superb facilities at Rotherham, we've also got two of their quality staff going to be presenting for us. The first few tickets for the event have now gone. Um, we do have a few early bird tickets remaining. There's not many though. So if you do want to come to the event, make sure to head over to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and just scroll down and you can get an early bird ticket available at the moment as this podcast goes out. Um, They will only run up until a couple of weeks before the event and then it will go to full price. But just on that note, any Football Fitness community members get further discount on the meetings as well. So if you are a member of the community, Go click on the member benefits tab of the community and there is a code on there, discount code, that will give you further discount. It also gives you discount on the early bird price as well. So make sure you go and claim that discount if you're already a member. If you're not, head over to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and get yourself signed up there. But now we will dive into the episode 147 with Frankie Hunter. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 147. I'm delighted to be joined today by Frankie Hunter. Welcome to the podcast, Frankie. Thank you for coming on. No problem. Thank you for having me. Now, Frankie, you are currently the head of fitness and academy sports science and medicine at Middlesbrough. But I want to give all the listeners a little bit of a rundown on your career so far. So do you want to Take us back, take us on the journey that has led up to this role. Um, yeah, go for it. Over to you. <laughs> I'm 32, by the way, so this could, this could take a while. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think like most people in our industry, uh, went to university, did an undergraduate degree, um, kind of knew that I wanted to work in sport and preferably football in some capacity. So kind of led me down natural path of, you know, sports science related degree. Um and my dissertation, I was lucky enough to um, be supervised by Rick Lovell, who's now out in Australia. 
Um, and he was really big and keen on the use of GPS at the time. Like GPS at the time, you're talking what, I don't even know how many years ago, 12 years ago, was, was in its relative infancy, definitely in football. I mean, it's commonplace now, it's just like a standard, but back then it was it was really new. Um, so lucky enough to be supervised by him for my undergrad dissertation and did a little bit of work with Doncaster Bells, just looking at like fatigue during five minute um, snippets of match play. And that kind of gave me a little niche into working with GPS and kind of gave me a little foot in the door in terms of, right, what clubs do I think might be ahead of the game a little bit or ahead of the curve in terms of using this type of technology um, and just kind of letter drop to all different clubs, certainly category one clubs, uh, clubs that I thought potentially would invest into GPS. Um, and from that, got a letter back from Southampton, which was obviously a million miles away from home, but it was someone that came back to me and, and was interested. So it was, it was brilliant at the time. Um, and they offered me just really to go down and have a bit of a chat with them and uh, more around my interests and kind of where I saw myself going with my career. Um, and I think the, the, the experience I had with GPS kind of lent myself to what they were looking for. So they were wanting to create an internship around like load monitoring and the use of GPS within the academy. Um, so I went on an internship there for a year, which started off quite niche in terms of load monitoring and GPS, but then kind of expanded as it does, I guess, when you start to, to get into um, these kind of roles and worked more pitch-based, more rehab-based in terms of like end stage and getting involved with the medical staff and bridging the gap between when a player is kind of towards the end of the, the rehab and then wanting to fit in with what the fit squad are doing. Um, almost used my experience with GPS and my experience that I had coaching because I'd done quite a lot of coaching prior to my university degree. So I managed to get my UA for B when I was maybe 19 and had quite a lot of coaching experience. So I kind of merged both together and made a bit of a niche role for myself, I'd say, at the club. Um, so that was my first kind of exposure to a full-time role, albeit it was an internship position to start with. Um, and then click of the fingers, three, year, three years go past, I'm still at the club and kind of gone from that role to... I guess what now would be termed maybe academy sports scientist, lead academy sports scientist. Um, and then six months into that role, went to be first team sports scientist. But within that role was kind of end stage rehab fitness coach as well. So it was yeah. a really nice blend for me. I was still kind of improving my knowledge and skill set around load monitoring because I was kind of learning on the job, to be honest, and trying to pick people's brains at the same time. Um, but then able to get time out on the grasses, which is where I knew my passion was. Um, really enjoyed my, my time coaching when I was a bit younger and wanted to try and get parts of that into this role um, because I knew it's what I enjoyed so was there three years and then a job came up I'm from Hull which you can probably tell from, from my accent but um, a job came up at Hull so they were category three at the time um, and they were advertising for a, a head of academy sports science and medicine because they were going to be category two and I think maybe category three at the time didn't need that role. But if you were going for category two, it necessitated somebody in that position. Mm. So that job came up and real speculative, just right, chuck my application in there. I'm kind of somebody who jump in the deep end before you think about it and mm. kind of if anything comes of it. Um, and in my head, I thought even if I get an interview, it'd be great to have some interview experience. That's kind of how I looked at it. Yeah. Um, and then 
a month later I got offered the job and was a bit like, oh, right, what do I do? <laughs> I, I love, I really enjoyed my job at Southampton, really enjoyed it. Um, and I think I was 24 at the time. And I'm thinking, right, in terms of pushing myself out of my comfort zone, being 24, leading a group of seven full-time staff, I thought that's going to be something that's really going to challenge me. And that kind of excited me a little bit, to be honest. Mm. My only apprehension and maybe something that, do I regret it now? I don't regret it. But my advice to people now would be to try and stay in a less senior position for a bit longer. And I know that might sound daft because I don't regret what I did. What I did has put me in good stead and has probably helped me in like roles that I'm in now and roles that I've been in in between. But actually going into kind of a, a head position or a senior position, you do lose that little bit of contact time. Yeah. And I think it's really important when you're, like certainly in the infancy of your, of your career, to get as much of that as you can. Um, but loved my time there, really good challenge. Like went to category two, kind of felt like I'd pushed that program on as much as I could in the three years I was there under the restrictions, budget, money, facilities that we had. Um, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, keep okay. going. I, I've, got, I've got a few yeah. to, to jump in on with it, but I think it's great. If you just keep going up until up until your current role, then I'll... Yeah, I'll, fine. Fine. So from there, I just got a really random phone call from the fitness coach um, that I worked with. So Ronald Kuhlman, he was one of the managers that I worked under at Southampton. Um, really fortunate to work under some top-class managers, of which he was one of them. Um, and kind of his fitness guy rang me out of the blue and was like, look, um, there's a role coming up at Everton. If you'd be interested, um, we'd like you to come and join, join us and work with us again. So I got offered the job of head of sports science there, working predominantly with the first team. But the idea was that we kind of, at, at Everton at the time, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but it was more or less like first team and 23s were classed as a, a team, I guess. And then the academy passed more pre-academy to 18s. So it was 18s and, um, sorry, it was 23s and first team, supporting the manager and his staff where he could, um, working outside on the grass with injured players, end stage, working outside on the grass with players that weren't playing. You know, that, that important group that sometimes gets forgotten about, the ones that aren't getting much, much minutes, so making sure they get the need. Um, and anyone that wants selected at the weekends, they'd kind of be my, my responsibility to work with them on a Saturday or Sunday or whenever it might be. Um, and then as is football, Manager sometimes don't do so well. Another manager comes in, whole new staff. Um, and actually, like, Everton were brilliant. I love my time there. Like, a really special club, really good club. And they they wanted me to stay on, but wanted me to stay on more as a, a, a managing staff for the interim, which I could have done and would have been the easiest decision. But I guess reflecting on my time and what I said earlier about going into management that early, I, I, that isn't what I just wanted to do solely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a new manager might come in in six months, but a manager could last for years as well. So I could spend five years potentially in a role that's maybe not what my passion is. So it was difficult, but took the decision to kind of step away from that and look for look for something. You look for new challenges that I felt suited my skill set a little bit better. Um, and that brought me to Middlesbrough, which is where I am, where I am now. And kind of had a couple of roles <laughs> since I started here. So I started as... Um, head of Academy Sports Science and Medicine, but there was a big drive from the club to try and marry up practices across the club, which really interested me, um, to try and give the club a bit of a one-club ethos and, and feel and try and align where we could, which obviously is difficult when manage, managers change and 
senior staff change quite frequently, but we felt that we could, there was some practices and some programs that we could, that we could align. Um, and then when Jonathan Woodgate got the job as first team manager, asked me to go and support him as head of fitness, first team coach with, with the first team, um, which was brilliant. So did that for, with COVID about 18 months. Mm. Um, so and I worked solely with first team players outside on the grass, designing the training sessions um, with the manager, working with end stage rehab players, working with the players that weren't playing. So it was more, I kind of looked after the outdoor work, fitness work. Um, and then that was supported by John Thrower, who kind of looked after everything from a gym based perspective. Um, and we worked together to try and make sure what we're doing in the gym married up with, with, with what we're doing outside. So really, really enjoyed that role. Um, probably the role that I've enjoyed the most in my career so far. Um, and then obviously managers change. Managers want different things, which is fine. Totally get that and, and, and respect that, um, which is where I see myself now, where I'm still, there's still some involvement in terms of club wide because there's still that communication with, um, sort of like the fitness and, and medical staff at the first team. But my responsibility lies with trying to lead the, the academy science and med- medicine staff again. Brilliant. What I was going to ask, what I was going to ask Frankie was when you get in these opportunities and when, when you've gone through these interview processes and obviously there'll be some that you, you don't get offered and some that you do, what's your um, thought process? Because obviously the jobs you've mentioned are probably the most spread out in terms of, um, in terms of location. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Be. But yeah. I'm just interested in when you get offered something, what, what's like your thought process on um, what has to match for you to take the role and, and take that gamble? And I know you said before that you jump into things and yeah. I think that's, that's a good thing as well because then you, you adapt, don't you, when you get into the situation? Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking for people listening, when they are getting off of things and they're thinking, oh, this might happen, this might happen, the manager might leave, or this might happen. What's your thought process around it? Yeah, I think the big thing for me is, is there a drive at the club? That's like a big thing because I fully immerse myself in work, rightly or wrongly. There might be a time in my life where that that then isn't the case, but I fully immerse myself in what I do in work. So I think I look for a club or... Um, the team of staff that might be managing and directing my work, I look for a vision from them. So, for instance, when I when I talk about the role I got offered at Hull, people might, and I know people looked at that and thought, but you're working with the first team at Southampton and you go into Hull that were Category 3 at the time. Like, they, they, they didn't see that as a, necessarily as a step forward, but I knew what the academy manager, what the club wanted to do with the academy, where they wanted to take it. Um, at the time, they, they probably weren't prolific in terms of producing youth players. But if you look over the past six years, you can see that that drive was real from the club, that there was an investment in making the academy the best it could be and trying to promote the talent within the area. So I think it's more what do they, and not necessarily sell to you because you're not going to an interview and they sell to you, but what are they wanting? Like, what's the long-term vision? Because I don't want to be... Like I don't want to get to 40 and my CV be like eight different clubs. That's not what I want. But I also think that going working at three or four different clubs actually gives you a, um, a better appreciation of different ways of working, um, how different clubs might adopt, adopt different philosophies, how that fits into yours. But I think the big thing for me is, is, is what's the vision? Like, where's the drive? 
what's the energy like from the staff? Because I don't necessarily want to go into a place where maybe um, not not staff are stagnant, that's wrong, but the vision's a bit stagnant or the vision's yeah. been the same for many years, but there's been no progression towards it. So I'm very much like, what what's next for the club and, and how do they see my experience fitting into that and supporting that? Because if it's just there's a role we need someone to do the role, that's probably not for me. But yeah. if it's this, this is the role and this is where I want to take it and we think the experience you maybe got in this role will help, like then that becomes interesting for me. Yeah. Um, I always think like, I kind of know this from my time, I guess probably at Everton maybe, but the actual role and the job title and salary for me is not a driver. It's more everything that goes on around that. So take a job title away because the job title is just on paper. Actually yeah. what you do will probably look a lot different. But what is the actual drive of the club? Because I think if you know that and you believe what they're telling you, then it becomes exciting. So I think that's the that's probably the thing that I try and get whenever I go to an interview or I get an offer of a job. That's kind of the, the information that I want to know. Yeah, I think that's great advice as well. Um, and I summed up though when I asked you your job title, you didn't actually know it at the moment as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, hang on a minute, let me just get in touch with HR. I well, should no, probably know this. It's yeah. a great point though, isn't it? Because we get yeah. too hung up on titles, I think. And like you say, the, the passion and everything else that you've just mentioned there is much more important than what's, yeah, exactly. than what's wrote on a bit of paper. Um, brilliant. Well, we'll move it on because we wanted to talk around uh, developing fitness. So I wanted to yeah. just tap into your approach of particularly pre-season to start with the approach going into pre-season to get players ready for the season so do you want to can you give like a bit of an outline on on your approach and then we can go into a little bit more detail yeah um I mean I'll probably speak more about my time plan in pre-season with with the first team um and I think the big thing with anything like this you know this could be any question that you ask me about anything and I think that we could all maybe think that we have the best programme in the world or we have the best periodization or the best progressions in the world. But I think ultimately planning a pre-season or, or planning to develop fitness in season, in a pre-season, for me, the biggest thing is, that is one, the relationship that you've built with the staff, whether that's in the academy and you talk more about the MDT or whether it's at first team and you're talking more around the head coach or manager. Um, I think that relationship that you build and there being a shared vision in terms of how it's going to look is the most important thing. Because we've probably all, you know, I've been guilty of, well, you can, you can produce something that looks brilliant on paper. It looks like the progressions, right, we've nailed them. We know that they're going to progress the sprint distance, the speeds, this and that, game-based training, whatever you want to talk about. But unless there's a shared belief and trust in that plan, then I think that elements of it will fail. Uh, I think that was probably one thing you know, when I look back at the preseason that I did here with the first team I think that that's one thing that we probably did well in terms of everybody bought into what it was that we were doing we all understood how we were going to progress things where the challenges would come how we'd stretch the players you know we even spoke about the second preseason game we were going to that was a week where we were really going to challenge the players physically so we knew going into that second game that actually the physical performance in that game, we're not going to concern ourselves about. So what we didn't want to happen was, and, and honest and open with the players, was look, you're going to go into this game and you're going to feel tired. Yeah. But for us to get the amount of working that we want to in that third week, you are going to feel tired in that game. So it was almost 
preempting that we've got some super working this week and we're going to work hard this week. Don't expect to feel fresh in that game. Um, but the staff understanding that and the players understanding that almost then like relieved a little bit of pressure or maybe a little bit of anxiety. So I think before you talk about any progressions or any models, everybody buying into what it is you're doing. And I think that that's important for medical staff, you know, from coaches, support coaches, um, any sports scientists, any staff that's working with that group of players, everyone understanding what it is we're trying to do is really important because any player then, and people that have worked with Fessy will probably resonate with this a bit. Any player then that goes to different staff to go, am I meant to feel this tired? Or am I meant to feel this fresh? Everyone has the same answer. Yeah. And I think that is so important. So important. Um, and for me, like around the preseason, it's about just being, I'm quite, I'd say that my style in terms of planning preseason and planning training blocks is quite aggressive, I'd say, in terms of, not taking unnecessary risks, but I very rarely say do less. Yeah. I'd like to think that if you if you spoke to staff who's worked with me before, um, I'm not someone that says, oh, I, I don't think you should be doing too much. Of course, there's times where those conversations have to be had. But I think that I found in my career more that I'm trying to get the players to do more at the right times as opposed to doing less. Um, and that like, simple things like, you know, First two days training, or the first week they'll do two days, recover on the third day, but they're in structured recovery, creating habits, getting them to understand the importance of recovery. Then they do a three-day block. So like simple things like two-day block recovery, three-day block day off. Then they do three-day block recovery, two-day block game. So it's like, I mean, we could sit here and talk for hours about how you progress training intensities through game-based training, increasing pitch sizes, decreasing pitch sizes, all that good fun stuff. But for me, I think the shared vision and just being sensible with what you're planning is is probably what I found to be make or break. Yeah. Um, first team level. And adaptability, I suppose, as well, because we spoke yes. about this a lot of times. It's you, you said about not restricting, I suppose, and, and yeah. talking people out of doing work, but it's the ability to step in at the right time and adapt what maybe what a coach is planning or because you've got the, you're looking at a slightly different lens, aren't you? But the ability yeah. to step in there and adapt, again, it comes down to what you talked about, isn't it, in terms of relationships with the staff and everyone sharing. Yeah, exactly that. The relationships with staff is, is the be all and end all, in my opinion. Yeah. If you've built relationship then there's a mutual respect there so whether you have a conversation around actually I think we need to increase the pitch size today because we want players to open the legs we want them to try and do it naturally through football session if that doesn't match with what they want tactically then there's going to be have to be a compromise there but I think having the respect to agree to disagree on, on maybe what we want that day then that's also a win I don't think it's necessarily that all rosy and everyone's going to agree all the time because that's not the case no no. but I think comfortable to have the discussions and being comfortable in expressing what you feel the players need from your own little niche and your own little bubble then I think that that's what's important um I think like I say the the relationships and building those relationships and building the trust is it's golden it's massive it's massive in this industry I think because that, that comes down to the culture at the club and then the atmosphere that you're working in as well, doesn't it? And it and when you've got that solid, those disagreements can take place where you, you're allowed to disagree with people rather than it turning into like, I'm right, you're wrong sort of thing. 
Yeah. And I think that's a, it's a productive environment in a, a very yeah. like productive environment when you feel comfortable to have discussions where the, there is disagreements, like that's where you've got something powerful and you've got something really strong. And I think times where I know, I've in some of my role, or yeah, some of my roles at, at clubs I've worked at, you almost sometimes don't get questioned. And I'm thinking, although that's great for us, like in terms of staff listening, maybe or staff taking on board what you're saying, I don't think that's necessarily a productive environment because I think that there mm-hmm. should be product like in the right way, there should be challenges both ways. Um, so I think if it's a total shutdown and there's no conversation, that's not good. I think if it's a total, we we take on everything you're saying, we're going to do everything to the exact thing that you're saying. I also don't think that that's good. Yeah. So I think it's balance where everybody knows what they're working towards, but everybody's comfortable having difficult decisions at times and knowing that there's going to have to be leniency and there's going to have to, you're going to have to be adaptable. And I think that's where you get the real, real powerful work and the real powerful environment. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, want, I wanted to just um, ask you about, because looking into this season or this preseason in particular, you've seen loads of different approaches. And we were just talking beforehand saying that it's literally a snapshot that we're seeing from different clubs. But um, I don't know whether I've just missed it in previous seasons, but a lot of, a lot of clubs seem to be taking different approaches, playing 30 minute, 30 minute halves or 30 minute thirds or whatever it is. And um, some playing two 45 minute um, games against different opponents. There seems to be loads of different approaches going on uh, this preseason. What's your rev- What's your views on that? Yeah, um, my views on that are: I think that I think as a be careful what I say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, as an industry, I think that we're very. I think we can be very judgmental in terms of we might see what one club's doing, or we might see something on social media that people have posted around pre-training work or gym work. And I think we can be super judgmental without actually knowing any context around why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so a club might choose to do three 30 minutes and all players play 30 minutes. Well, they might be working under restrictions or boundaries or whatever you want to call it, where that's actually the only game time that those players are getting that week. And they might have done a 60-minute in-house game the day before that we didn't know about. And that's the reality of it is, I think as an industry, we need to potentially be a little bit less judgmental on what we see when we don't know reasons why. Uh, we've all probably, and I can think of loads of loads of examples where probably you've you've done something where you think, well, actually, in the ideal world, that might not have been how it looked, but in my world right now that I'm living in, that's the best it can look. And yeah. I think that, that like, that's that's realistic. In terms of my own opinion on it, um, I think that if you're playing, this is, listen, this is just my my personal opinion, but I think mm-hmm. if you are in less than 45 minutes, then they probably shouldn't be playing. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd say that with players returning from injury as well, and people will disagree with it and have absolutely perfect arguments to disagree, and I respect that. But my thoughts are, if a player's not ready to play 45 minutes, probably not ready to play. Um, I think... Obviously, like I've worked under in first first team, four or five different managers, and they've all had a different way of doing it. And that's again, that's the reality of it. I quite liked when we similar to what you said there. Um, you know, first game, let's play two forty-five minutes. Everyone plays forty-five. Dead simple that in it because the games are forty-five halves. Really yeah. easy. Um, the the next progression becomes more difficult in terms of planning, and this is where. 
I think there's a lot of unseen work done at football clubs where planning for pre-seasons is probably happening now for the next pre-season. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking like probably the, in terms of my own role and guess of what we're interested in, I quite liked it where we went from that 45 minute game. So everyone played 45 minutes. The next progression would be that we either ask a team to send two teams or like you're saying, play on two separate days, but they play 45, have a half time and play 15. Mm. So that, you know, we get in touch with Sunderland because it's a local club, right? Second week or the second match exposure, we want everyone to play 60, but we want it to be a 45 and 15 because that's what they're going to be expected to do when they go competitive. So have you got enough players or do you want to mirror that? If they do, great. We'll play 45, half-time, play 15, then next team come on. Yeah. Or two different games. Um, but I think that they're, I think that they're sensible progressions. Um, and then I think you obviously go then to your, your standard 90s where, again, like you are saying, maybe two games on the same day um, or a team that is in the same position and the same progressions and wants to play two, two 90s. Um, but I even think like, and I know people will have their own thoughts on in-house games and benefits of it in terms of application, maybe, from, from players. But I think that playing an in-house game first, whether that's against 23s, um, whether that's against each other, whatever that might look like, I think that at times that's quite a nice first progression because there's less... I think that there's less pressure on players when they play those types of games in-house. And that doesn't mean that you can't put the strip on, you can't get referees to come in and referee it, because that helps. But potentially as a first exposure to minutes in pre-season, that can be a bit of a soft introduction, I think. Um, so I think that's been, again, people have people have their own thoughts on that, and that's fine. But I've, I've seen that as players can often self-pace or self-regulate within those games if they feel the need to. So if players feel like they can bomb on and sprint and sprint back and sprint again and sprint back, they probably feel like they're ready to do that and that's fine. But mm -hmm. if a player subconsciously don't feel like they're ready to, to work quite to that level, well, they're probably more likely to regulate in a game like that than they are playing in front of 5,000 people in the first friendly. Yeah. So I think that sometimes that's been quite nice to use that as like, like I say, a bit of a soft introduction to match minutes before then playing the, the split 45. Just a very quick update on our Football Fitness Online community. We have added another partner discount, this time from food prep company, Good Food Prep. And anyone that's been to any of our meetings has probably experienced the food that Good Food Prep do. They were previously balanced meals. Some amazing prepped food, um, really tasty meals as well. Anyone that came to the event at Preston, MK Don's, down at Colchester, um, we had good food prep or what were balanced meals. They did all the food for us at those events and members of the football fitness online community now get a discount with good food prep as well. You, If you're already a member, you can go onto the member benefits tab of the community and there's a quick video with the founder of good food prep, Jem. He talks you um, through the company and what they do and who they work with and how they work with teams and individuals as well. So you can go and check that out. We also have loads of great content available on the community, webinars, presentations, interviews. So if you want to become a community member, you can get one month free on the community by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab, signing up there, and that does give you one month free. After that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward as well. So if you're not already a member, go and check it out, 
footballfitfed.com. Click your community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Frankie Hunter. Yeah, it's a great point. I love the stuff that you brought up at the start as well, like just knowing the whole picture, isn't it? Like not judging. But I think these are important discussions, aren't they? Because we could probably get like four or five other people on the podcast that would have different approaches and slightly different views and different experiences. That's what's so good about what we do, isn't it? That that there are different approaches. And that's why I just found it interesting because you look at clubs and clubs do it, they all do it differently. And when you talk about restrictions, this last 18 months has absolutely summed it up. Um, yeah. obviously it's not the ideal way that I don't think anyone would have worked but everyone's still yeah. got working so I know. Yeah. that that sums it up but the other thing sorry Frankie were you going to say something on that no, I was, yeah I was just going to say like I, th- I think probably the biggest conversations that I have around pre-season again certainly at first team level I think that there's always a bit of a trade-off and again everyone has different opinions but there's always a bit of a trade-off between, I think, managers and head coaches strongly, strongly believe that players need like a certain amount of minutes. Mm. So the idea in the head of, well, I need all my players to play 500 minutes or whatever figure they may have, and I want them to play exactly 290 minutes, and I know then the fit to play in the season, which is fine. But then I think, again, if you've got that nice environment where chats are open and honest, it's like if we're going to factor in all these games, we're really limited in terms of, um, how we can progress them leading into the first, second and third games. So things like, you know, that are important to us around progressing maybe game-based training minutes, progressing conditioning runs, progressing speed exposures that we think are maybe critical to having a successful pre-season were then almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not negotiating. Um, we're compromising that slightly. You yeah. Know, big thing for me is players need to get strong in the off season. And that's always a bit, a bit of a battle at times is like, I'd almost, I'd almost prefer players to forget about running, forget about aerobic conditioning or anything like that. Get strong, get really yeah. strong. Yeah. And in the preseason, yes, you still wanting to build that tolerance in the preseason, but if the games are coming really early, then we can just do some small doses, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, low reps, and I think, like, again, those types of conversations and manager and head coaches trusting you in terms of let's not give them tons of running to do because we know as athletes they'll probably take themselves out and keep themselves active because that's the kind of animals that they are. But can we all as a group try and promote them to get strong in this in this time? Because it's probably yeah. the only period in the season where they're not going to do 30,000 metres a week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, I think going. I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think everything that I link back to will often come to the relationships and that environment and trust and us trusting yeah. staff. Yeah, brilliant. And it's not. It's actually really smooth because we talked there about transition from off season to pre season, and then now yeah. I wanted to talk to you about the transition from pre season to the season to the, to the season yeah. starting. So in yeah. terms of your approach with the players, but also what your priorities are in the preseason period to what they shift to when we get into like first, second, third game. Yeah. So if I'm honest, don't think it shifts much and I don't think it changes much is my honest opinion. Uh, I've always quite liked it and I'm big on getting kind of feedback from players, feedback from staff, I guess players that you know you will get a, an honest answer from. Um, and I've quite liked having some kind of 
break to freshen the players up before the first week of the season. And again, that can be quite a difficult conversation with managers because giving a player two or three days off, there has to be an element of trust with players there because mm. we don't want them to different countries and, and, and what, whatever else. But I think if you've built that trust, certainly if a manager's been in there a long time, probably the trust is there. But if it's a new manager, build that trust over pre-season. And almost having that little mini break to go, right, go go refresh, go regenerate yourself, spend some time with family, spend some time with friends, not have to have just one day off where they're travelling maybe four hours to get home and then coming back early hours in the morning to get back for training, but giving them a clear break to reset. And then, right, when you come back, we're into the business end now, we're into the we're into the season. But in terms of my approach to fitness, I'd say it doesn't really change. I'm a believer that we can develop fitness in season with players and I'm a strong believer of that. Um Yes, there's times where games take priority. Certainly last year with COVID, fairly impossible at times because of two, three game weeks every week. Yeah. Uh, huge believer in, let's take a normal season, huge believer that we can build fitness in season. And I think if we narrow ourselves to a five-week block of work, which is pre-season, to go, I can get players fit in that five weeks in the final of the season. I, I, I just don't believe that. I just don't mm. think that that's possible. Um, so massive believe that we can build fitness in season. Um, and I think, again, it's around being adaptable um, and having a clear focus and a clear um, working pattern for the players. So I'm just thinking back to ways that we've done it before. And I'm, I'm a big believer in a, in a back-to-back conditioning there. Um, if I'm just talking solely my role and being really selfish in terms of the players getting physically fit, yeah, a back conditioning day for me is is something that I that I would I would try and get any club I work I worked at. So let's say it's a Saturday, we play on a Saturday and it's a one game week. So your Monday would be split groups or everyone go outside. The group that didn't play do more standard, but your Tuesday Wednesday become their our from a physical perspective they are our important days. Mm. And I think clear focus and the and the focus being different on both days is important because we know we can push them physically without overstretching them and working kind of the same energy system one day and then the next day. So I think having a clear switch in, in, in a physical focus as well as like a technical tactical focus is really important. But I think that being consistent also helps or I found also helps in terms of application and buying from the players. So the players would know, for instance, that on the Tuesday, they're going to work really tight areas. There's going to be duels. There's going to be battles. It's going to be 1v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s. Going to work in small areas. They know then before they come out to training what type of session they're going into. What the drills are, they'll have no idea. But yeah. they'll understand what the session roughly will be like. So in terms of prep, they can then focus on, on preparing right for that session. Um, you know, They might not need to go into any sort of running mechanics work or... Um, you know, loading posteriorly or whatever, they might go into landing mechanics or mm. acceleration deceleration prep. But then knowing what that session is going to be and knowing that the next day will be the flip opposite and then knowing roughly what to expect. So they know the next day, probably not going to be too much on our legs, but it's probably going to be more here and we're probably going to be expected to open out and open our legs. The work periods are going to be longer, might be a little bit more of a tactical focus, like them understanding that there's a difference. And I guess... With that, the players probably realise that there's there's a fair amount of planning and there's a fair amount of cohesion between the staff in terms mm. of what would be those days. So I think those two days for me 
are massive in terms of building fitness in season. Um, you know, the supplementary work that goes around that then can complement what they do outside. So yeah. if wanted to do power, they do power before they go into the opening out, the stride outs. If wanted to do strength, we'll probably do it in the afternoon when they go in tight areas because they're going to get an element of strength adaptations from working outside at the level that they are in tight areas. Mm. Um, but I think one thing that I've reflected on and probably that I've learned or, yeah, reviewed and reflected, I guess, is that I think we can't, we can't forget how much things like monotony can have a negative effect on that. I think that's a big lesson for, for me, if I'm honest. Yeah. You know, I'm massive Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday recovery or Thursday off as a fresh net, like no real, um, I guess in terms of um, being adaptable and giving and taking, I think, you know, quite often the coaches like the place to have a day away from the building, which I totally understand. Like I understand from a, not driving into work and freshening them up from a mental perspective. If that's, how, you know, if that's the angle they want to go at, I do get that spending time with family, friends and stuff. So day off or recovery day, however we see fit. But when it's like that for 50 weeks of the season, I think that monotony does play a part mm. and the match like on the flip side, contradicting myself. I think it's great that the players understand what they're going into, but then potentially if that becomes too monotonous for too many weeks, it can have a negative effect. Yeah. So I think like have a clear model, develop fitness, potentially like on review and reflection. And we spoke about this as a staff group, potentially up until the first international break, because then generally you start to get the double game weeks in the normal season. So do we then flip it to a midweek Wednesday off, which sometimes players can prefer, which is important. Um, so do we flip it? Because actually the physical returns are probably not going to be that important because, or not as important. They're always important. Not as important because they've got a lot of games. Yeah. So then I think when you're talking about focuses, well, at that point there after the international break, for me, the focus then becomes split. So we have a focus of recovery, regeneration for the ones that are playing and we have a focus of using every single opportunity we can to work the players that are not playing mm. so our focus goes from like a group base let's keep pushing fitness pushing fitness pushing the boundaries stretching players stretching players so then after the first international break probably up until january that focus then might switch to more game heavy program so the focus goes right for the starting 11 our focus is always on recovery regeneration um, potentially, you know, more monitoring from medical staff, from those around fatigue, freshness, etc. But with the ones that aren't playing, like how do we work with the coaches to make sure that they are working as hard as they were when the group are all getting stretched physically and possibly, you'd argue, work harder? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that that's, to sum it up, all, always develop fitness and we can always develop fitness, but I think we have to be mindful of when the games start or when the games start to become um, or the games program increases in terms of double game weeks, we do need to be mindful of that. And I think something that I've probably reflected on as a practitioner is you can have a model or a periodization that you prefer or you like to work to, because we all have our philosophy is a very fluffy word that gets banded around a lot in it, but we all <laughs> like to work. I'm not sure it's a philosophy, but we all have a model that we like to work to. But I guess be adaptable so that the player doesn't become stagnant. Maybe not stagnant, but maybe it's a bit mundane, isn't it, at times? Yeah, 
Yeah. The other thing I was going to say for timing on that within a season is I suppose that when you get into that first international break, the and this is quite broad, obviously, across clubs, the, the, the preferred starting eleven is a little bit more dis- it's a little bit more um set, I suppose. Yeah. That the the managers might have played around with a few systems or a few different different faces yeah. and different positions. And at that point, it might hopefully it might be a little bit more settled. And I suppose that's what you're saying is that that when the, that's when not only the double games the double game weeks come, but also when you've got players that you probably know aren't going to be involved. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's then when you've got to deal with the whole the whole squad, and that's when it becomes important to get those players up to speed, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I think, I think there's a couple of things with that. Is that at that point you're right, starting eleven or preferred players. Or, or players that are going to play more minutes becomes quite clear at that point. And that can be difficult. It can be difficult for the players that are potentially not playing many minutes. Mm. Uh, young players that are just breaking in, probably a little bit easier because their expectations are lower. But they yeah. might be some happy uh, senior players or more experienced players, which is difficult to deal with. But I think <laughs> everyone will have their own experiences of this, but we know how quickly things change in football. And I think that that's something that I always keep in the back of my mind is... If we're not doing what's right for these players, and yes, it might be difficult conversations in terms of you're working in the afternoon and mm-hmm. some of you are not, like that's a difficult decision. But I think the moment we stop pushing that is a moment we need to question ourselves. Yeah. Because we should be quite comfortable if a player hasn't played for two months, of course there's match sharpness, get that. And I get that players may look rusty, understand that. But from a a player being prepared and a player not being at risk in terms of they're out of favour, but then they're going to play four games in two weeks. Hmm. Like that we need to keep in our mind is we have to do what's right for them. And although they might not understand it, we have to help them understand it. Um, And I think that at times it's interesting as the season goes on that players can be unhappy at the start because it's new to them. They're left out the squad. They're not playing as much it's human nature for people not to be happy and we probably want them not to be happy. We yeah. don't want to be happy they're not playing. So number yeah, one, yeah. That's, glad you're not happy because ultimately everybody wants to play. Um, but I think that a win for us is three or four months down the line, what's the player like then? Because I think if we've probably shown enough care to them and we've shown them, communicated with them, shown a bit of empathy with them and they know that their interests uh, at our heart um, I think that quite often that can switch and you can yeah. actually get those that, that quite willingly want to then do more because they understand and they see that what they're doing is for them and it's not you chuck them into a squad session and they're doing a squad gym session or they're doing a squad fitness session actually these outside of what they'll do on the training pitch more with myself with the coaching staff the little bits of individual work that they're doing is for them and it might be from what we've seen in testing it might be subjectively what we've seen through conversations it can be from anything it doesn't matter but I think players will always be unsettled players will always be unhappy when they don't play human nature and we want them to be unhappy but where's their mindset two months down the line they'll still be as unhappy that's normal but to get them into that afternoon session three times a week do we spend as much energy trying to get them into it or are they coming willingly because I think that's where then you go, do you know what? We've actually probably done a good job there. Um, yeah, so I think yeah. our expectations with that, as well as theirs, to be honest, the easiest thing in the world is just to 
oh, well, they've done a little bit more outside. They've done four two-minute 3v3s more than the rest. Like, they're fine, they're, they're topping up. Mm. Is that... I don't think so, because I think these players can do much, much more. Um, and if nothing else, get them to think selfishly. They're not going to be at this club forever. Yeah, but so, that, that was one thing I was going to say. Selfishly for yourself, yeah. Because it, when you mentioned about football changing so quickly before, there could be an injury, which means they're suddenly starting every game, or they could yeah. be sent out on loan. And these yeah. are these are real factors that can come into it where they need to be ready, don't they? So, yeah, you I 100% agree. Um, and that's what... That's what they get judged on, and that's what we get judged on. Yeah. Things like that. They aren't played for two months. They get chucked into a game. Like it or not, they're getting judged in terms of how they look. Yeah. Like it or not, we're probably getting judged at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And control everything. No, like we can't. But I think that that group of players are so important, so so important. And I think again, going back to building relationships for me, the relationship thing's massive. You build the relationship with the players. You communicate well with them. They see that it's for them and that there's an element of, well, you're doing this because this is what we've seen. Or do you remember that discussion we had? This is how we're going to try and help you. But we need this to be consistent. So I think being clear clear with how you communicate and your messages, um, I think that you can, like I said, two, three months down the line, I think that you can get really good buy-in from those players. Yeah. No, Brilliant. Frankie, we covered the majority and I've just checked the time. It's absolutely flying by. So I've, I feel like we've covered loads <laughs> and I don't want to take up your whole yeah. afternoon. Um, but I'll move it on to uh, some of the quick fire questions that we run at the end of the podcast now. So yeah. first one being, who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Um, oh, um. I know this is a tough one. Aside from saying like family and all that, that you yeah, meant to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you meant to that, say. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, you meant to say, yeah. Right. Sorry Aside if they're watching. That. She doesn't mean it. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Mum, sorry, Daddy. Um, they won't be watching. They won't be watching. Um, I think like I've been cle- like very cliche this, but I've been lucky to work with unbelievable managers in terms of football staff and unbelievable support staff. Um, like genuinely mean that I'd say biggest influence when I worked at Southampton was lucky enough to work under um, Pochettino and his staff so I think it's important that it's like the full staff group yeah and not even around like anything technical or like football specific more around their like energy around the place Mm. their work ethic was second to none never seen anything like it and I think that that's rubbed off on me if I'm honest so in terms of like um inspiring me that's certainly something that's inspired me like the way that they looked after the human side and not just the football side physical side all that sort of stuff the way that they looked after the the, the human side and how they interacted with players was like wow (laughs) yeah and that was right across the staff as well staff players Mm. like one of those one like just amazing qualities where they could drop someone who's probably started 15 games in a row and everything's fine because the way that they communicated with them, the way that everybody felt like they were working towards a shared goal, everybody felt that they were important towards that goal. Just like, yeah, I guess the, the, the things that we can't learn in a textbook is probably what I'd say. Like in terms of having a, an impact on my career so far, it, it's probably that. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and I, I, I mention high performance podcast all the time, but 
uh, and I should probably get them to give us a sponsor or something. I mention it that much, but um, the Pochettino episode on that is incredible. So yeah, anyone that wants to go and listen to him being interviewed, it's, it's brilliant. So um, next one being, what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, I'd say my strength in terms of like delivery in the role, certainly my strengths are outside and communicating, working with coaching staff to try and make, or to try and make sessions holistic and kind of drive physical returns through football. Um, I think that's probably my strong point in terms of more of a, a practitioner. I think in like the softer side, um, because I've worked over the spectrum, I'd say probably my application and my care, care is maybe not the right word, but how I work as a practitioner doesn't change whether I'm working with under 10s or I'm leading first team. Yeah. In terms of like the, the ethic, the, the, the ethos, the, the time I spend, um, how much I care about what we deliver and what I deliver kind of doesn't waver depending on who I'm working with. And I think that that's probably something that's, that's potentially a strong point. Yeah. Brilliant. And then last one, um, in terms of CPD, so it might be courses, it might be webinars, it could be podcasts. Is there anything that you've done, seen, watched recently that you feel like has either got you thinking about things or influenced your practice in any way? Um, yeah, like I think we all, I said bad thing about the industry in terms of sometimes judging people without knowing the context, but I think a good thing about as practitioners is that we're very um, active in terms of you know podcasts um webinars certainly over lockdown mm. and i think that i think that you can take i think you can take anything from from any webinar podcast you listen to whether it's almost agreeing with what you think or disagreeing with what you think i think you can equally take something from anything my my biggest thing is in terms of a practitioner and cpd is almost I'd say the biggest thing I've learned is getting is is getting feedback from from people yeah so CPD in terms of webinars podcasts like brilliant we all take things from them because everybody has such different experiences but I think back a couple of years ago maybe even half ago now before lockdown I got asked to deliver on a youth award a physical block Mm. so it was it was it was delivering I guess similar to what we spoke about um, how you like to work, how you work with coaches, all this type of stuff. And I was doing it in front of a room of category one, under 18, under 23 coaches. Mm. So it's almost like a very, not difficult environment, but a challenging environment to go and speak about that in front of very, very, very experienced staff. And I think then kind of feedback you get from that and almost reflecting on that for me is as valuable as any webinar. Yeah. So I, I guess in my experiences, the webinars, the podcasts gives us those like technical little touch points and maybe like, oh, maybe I need to know a little bit more about that. But actually getting out of your comfort zone and asking or getting feedback on something that you're delivering in terms of like professional development, I think that that's the best thing that we can do. Yeah, brilliant. Great, great advice. That. Um, just finally, Frankie, if people have got questions, they want to reach out, um, is there anywhere that you direct them? Um, 
Well, I have Twitter, but it's not. Re- I don't really do anything on it. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy for people to email me. Like that's probably the best way of getting in touch. Like I say, my Twitter is very boring. I don't really do anything from a, I guess a, um, job perspective on there. It's more of a personal account. Yeah. Uh, my is not up to date. I really need to get onto this type of stuff. I know. Um, well, if, well, if anyone wants, if anyone wants to reach out via email, they can always drop us a message, and we can perfect. pass on details. So that's that's not yeah. a problem. But uh, sometimes happy. people like to reach out about certain elements of the, or aspects that we've covered in the podcast. So if they do. Yeah um yeah guys reach out we uh, you can get us on email mail at footballfitfed.com um and i can obviously link you up with, with frankie as well but frankie it's been superb really really no, good i've enjoyed it thank you thanks for the invite not at all it's been great to have you on great to chat and um mm-hmm. yeah i wish you all the best for the upcoming season appreciate it thank you ben big thank you as always for listening to the podcast and Extra thanks to Frankie for coming on and giving up her time. I think we covered some great stuff in this podcast all around developing and maintaining football fitness. Um, You can go and link up with Frankie. If you do want her email, just drop us a message and we can send it over so you can drop her an email. But you can also look her up on LinkedIn as well. Um, Just search her name, Frankie Hunter, um, F-R-A-N-K-I-E and then Hunter Takeaways for me on this one, I think the advice that she gave around getting or taking a job, looking at the drive at the club, and um, she also said about not looking at the title of the role as well. So I think that was a great bit of advice. The other thing she said from her career was spending spending more time in less senior positions Um, before you take a lead role. So I think that was a great bit of advice as well. The relationships with staff, we touched on all the way through the episode, which we know the importance of that, but it it just summarizes it and it it just shows the importance of those relationships. The more practitioners talk about it. um, So it's definitely something to think about in your own practice. She spoke about having a shared vision not only with a club that you potentially move into, but also staff around you as well, which is really important. And then the other thing, and I referenced the High Performance Podcast again, was around the energy that she took from um, Maurizio Pochettino and also his staff. So I think that's a great point um, in terms of learning from some of these top-class coaches and and the obviously the effect that he's had on not only the players but his staff around him as well that they all seem to have a similar sort of energy about them as well so loads of good takeaways for this one as always I'd love to see what you take away from the podcast because I'm sure there's maybe some of the same takeaways but maybe some different ones as well so please as always share the episode and tag us in on Twitter with a, with a few of your takeaways that you um, take away from the podcast as well. It'll be great to see um, the sort of things that you're learning and, and putting into practice in, in your own practice as well. And as always, big thank you for your support. If you've not left us an iTunes review, please head over to iTunes and take five minutes to do that. I'd really appreciate it. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 148.